Listen to WGN Radio's newest podcast, Behind the Badge, Illinois, hosted by David Hochberg. Behind the Badge, Illinois, views current events through the eyes of Illinois law enforcement leaders. Tune in. Visit WGNRadio.com slash Behind the Badge. Hey, you ready to go, Reg? I am too. Let's just let's just let's just get to work, right? It's summer; we can enjoy things, but uh, now it's time to work. So let's do that, okay? What do you say? Cool. I'll give you the um, three S's in the countdown. You give me the music, and I'll give you a podcast. That's the way it's done here. So put it in the book. Three seventy-three. You ready to go? Me too. All right, here we go. Star, smile, strong. Three, two, one. Hey, it's Elton Jim Toronto, and this is Captain Pod Test. Whoop. No, 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 that time it. Here we go again. All right, try it again. (laughs) We'll see what happens. Three, two, one. Hey, it's Elton Jim Toronto, and this is Captain Pod Testic. Now, you see what what happened? You know, uh, well, okay. Whatever happens, we're just going to let it go, okay? Here we go. No one's hearing this anyway. Here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, it's Elton Jim Toronto, and this is Captain Podtastic. And welcome to another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday, a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast. We're there. We're right there, just waiting for you. But don't forget, listening is important. But getting out there, hitting the streets, telling your friends, telling your family, tell any, telling anyone who listens to a podcast that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podcastic, and it should be theirs too. That's that's not just as important, but it's very important. So get out there and spread the word. Your loyalty and devotion, oh, it helps me sleep at night. Don't forget, if you like what you hear, you can go to WGNRadio.com, hit the prompt for the podcast section, and then you can find the prompt for this podcast. And my gosh, when you hit that duck, get ready, because you are going to be uh, attacked by podcast after podcast after podcast just sitting there waiting for you to binge and have fun and get some information and if you're not too busy you might learn something (laughs) that's my Bill Cosby thank you very much anyway there's a ton of podcasts there just keep scrolling down and scrolling down we've been doing this since 2016 And this is episode 373. A little housekeeping before we get started uh, on today's topic. Um, I don't want to say I told you so, uh, but yeah, I think I do. (laughs) I think I do, and I enjoy doing that. If you've been a listener (laughs) with any kind of longevity here. Uh, yeah, I um, you know I get out there and I, I make some predictions, and uh, when they come true, I do like to take a bow. Thank you very much. I like to take credit. Uh, the one that I'm going to take credit for now 
um, is the prediction that I made about Wheel of Fortune a couple of podcasts ago. I talked about how the the hosting job of Wheel of Fortune, currently held by Pat Sajak, apparently is the most or was the most coveted job in all the world and certainly in show business. As soon as Sajak announced his retirement, many people were either subtly or very directly throwing their names in the ring or throwing their hats in the ring, um, putting their names out there to say, hey, I wouldn't mind hosting that. Everybody who I didn't know, I don't know, as I said on the podcast, I don't know if Pat, Pat Sajak, no, he had the most coveted job in the world. And if he did, would have he given it up? But in that podcast, I did predict two things and say two things that ultimately came true, did not expect them to come true this fast, but I did predict that they would happen or they should have happened, and they certainly did. I talked about how, while I'm not a fan of Ryan Seacrest, he would be the best host. He checks every box. He's this generation's Dick Clark. A hundred jobs, doesn't offend anybody. People of both, men um, tolerate him, women like him. That's about, uh, that's what you can say. Doesn't offend anybody. You don't know about his politics. You don't know anything about him, except he's got a nice smile and he can read a teleprompter very well. And he, you know, he dresses well. You know, he dresses, he's, you know. He wears the hip, cool stuff. Uh, but that's enough. That's what Dick Clark did 50 years ago. And that's why he had like a 50-year career and made a ton of money. And, and as I said, Ryan Seacrest followed in his footsteps. I think Dick Clark even anointed uh, Ryan Seacrest, Seacrest in many ways. Gave him the hosting job of the Dick Clark's Rockin' Eves. Dick Clark's name's still on there. So I predicted that even though a lot of people were throwing their names in the ring, uh, Ryan Seacrest's name was initially popped up almost immediately. And while I said I'm not a huge fan of his, he really would be the best choice. But more importantly than that, that was not that hard of a prediction to make. I will take credit for it, certainly. (laughs) But, um, But that one wasn't too hard. But one that I will certainly take credit for, and one that I did not hear many people making, was that I felt that the smartest thing that the producers of the show could do would not be similar to what the producers of Jeopardy did, of draw this thing out for months, have all these would-be people audition from all different you know, lines of work, comedians and hosts and sports figures and from politics and all this other stuff and, and drag this out thinking that they were going to keep this, the story, give it some legs and um, create a buzz. It only got a little boring after a while. And then ultimately they had all these different people on and they wound up naming one of the producers. So it was all a sham. And then... I think so many people were disgusted by that decision and being hoodwinked that uh, that they they went and dig, dug up some dirt on whoever that guy was. Can't remember his name anymore. And uh, while as soon as he was named, 
Uh, they dug into his background. They found some controversial statements he made years ago on some little heard podcast, but that was enough to sink the guy, and he was gone. And then they finally wound up with Kevin Jennings and Mayim Bialik, um, who they have now, or Keith Jennings. What is his name? Kevin Jennings? Keith Jennings? Ken Jennings? I don't, I, you can tell. I don't really watch... Uh, I don't really watch Jeopardy, to be honest. Um, I think it's Ken Jennings, right? Let me take a look here. Oh, in the old... Uh, in the old computer here, huh? It's Ken Jennings, right? Yeah, it's Ken Jennings. I think I, say, I, think I said that, right? No, maybe not. Who knows? Anyway, Ken Jennings. But that was... They, they, they totally mishandled that. Jeopardy totally mishandled it. So I said that Wheel of Fortune... If they were smart, the producers, they would immediately don't go through this big rigmarole. Don't stretch this out. Even though Pat Sajak is going to be there for another year, name Ryan Seacrest now, right away. Just name him or whoever the host is going to be. I thought it would be Seacrest, but whoever it is, just name him. Boom. Get it over with. Let Pat have his year of, uh, you know, a farewell. We'll see what happens with Vanna, but name your host right now, soon. Don't drag it out. And sure enough, um, they did exactly that. So maybe they're listening. <laughs> but good job. You did it, and don't worry. Now now that doesn't have to hang over everybody, and what's going to happen, and Pat Sajak could have all of his next year and his time alone to get all his accolades and all his uh, you know pats on the back from everybody in this in his final season and then Ryan starts excellent they handled it well they learned from the horrible jeopardy um, example clearly and they did it right so congratulations to you and I yes I will take credit um, on a, in a big I told you so on that one so what I want to talk to you about today is uh, very close to my heart. Just got back, in fact, from uh, a couple of stops, final stops, on the Farewell Yellow Brick Road Elton John tour, his final huge tour that he announced initially in 2018. It was supposed to be a three-year worldwide tour. It was supposed to end in 2021, November, at Dodger Stadium, revisiting Dodger Stadium, where he initially played for the first time in 1975 for two sold-out shows that uh, sold more than 110,000 tickets over two shows. And at the time, in 1975, was record-breaking and historic for many reasons. The stadium show at that time was not a normal thing that we see now. Look, it's Taylor Swift selling out... You know, eight, nine shows at stadiums. Um, back in 75, rock was was huge. It was it was it was building. It was it was it was big enough and popular enough to fill arenas of twenty thousand, but there weren't that many acts that on their own 
could fill a stadium of 50 or 60,000 people. In fact, Elton John, when he did his shows in October of 1975 at Dodger Stadium, was the first act to play Dodger Stadium since the Beatles were there in 1966. So it was a while, but Elton's popularity was so huge at that time that he was one of the few artists who could fill it, not just once, but twice, two nights, two shows. And then certainly after that, uh, rock and roll continued to grow, and the stadium show became a permanent part of the rock and roll touring landscape, depending on the size of the act. And in many ways, in the late 70s and early 80s, if there wasn't a group that on their own could fill up a stadium or any kind of an act, group or single solo act like Elton that could fill up a stadium on their own, then what they would do is was have several bands uh, with these kind of dream lineups, uh, rock or pop acts. I remember Chicago and the Beach Boys, for instance, uh, got together in the seventies and played baseball stadiums, and Peter Frampton and the, you know the you know the the Monsters of Rock tour. Peter Frampton and other bands would, um, I think, even the Police may have been. I don't know if they were with him or not. I remember here in Chicago, at uh, at Sox Park, the old Comiskey Park, they used to have these multi-act rock outdoor stadium shows but it took a couple of two or three bands they were all day affairs um but elton filled dodger stadium in 75 on his own and and really uh helped pave the way for other uh rock acts and pop acts then to follow suit but back then it was certainly was something very unique and very historic so as i said uh elton's tour was announced in the early part of, uh, I think it was in January of 2018, made a very elaborate announcement with uh, with Anderson Cooper saying that this would be his final tour of his career. Tour. It would start in Allentown, Pennsylvania on September 8th, 2018, and it would end sometime in 2021 and ultimately was supposed to end in November of 2021 in Los Angeles at Dodger Stadium. Of course, no one foresaw (laughs) COVID, which basically delayed the tour for pretty much two years. Uh, The tour uh, was suspended in early 2020 and did not come back until early in January, late January of um, mid-January of 2022. So literally two years as the rest of every of the world was shut down for that long. So obviously the tour has been extended and went out five years and a lot of different shows, you know, based on scheduling, shows had to be rescheduled in blocks. And ultimately the Dodger Stadium show did take place in November of 2022, but it was not the finale show of the tour as it was meant to be. It wound up being the finale tour of the North American legs of the farewell tour. And then early this year, in 2023, um, 
he played throughout Europe, ending on July 8th, 2023, in Stockholm, Sweden. It wasn't meant to be the final show. The Stockholm, Sweden show, in fact, and this leg of the European tour that took place in 2023 was scheduled originally for the fall of 2020. So there were ticket holders here. Some people had tickets in their hand for three years for these shows, waiting for them. And so the way scheduling worked out, uh, the this European leg, originally set for 2020 of the fall, turned out to be the final leg of the tour. And so the Stockholm show, which was just supposed to be just another show early on in the tour, 2020, a year before the tour was supposed to end, wound up taking on very special significance and being the final show of the tour. Now, let me explain once again, because this has been misunderstood. I don't know why. Uh, I think, once again, I, I think overall people don't listen, people don't read, attention spans. I don't know what it is. But Elton made it very clear in 2018 and has made it very clear throughout this tour that he is not retiring from show business. He is not retiring from performing. He is not retiring from recording. He is not retiring. This, yes, was a farewell tour. A tour is a city-to-city or country-to-country ongoing collection of performances from city to city that usually take a month or two months, six weeks or so, eight weeks, and cover several cities throughout the United States or several countries around the world. They're very taxing in terms of travel and time. There's usually, you know, their shows sometimes you know, if they're in in the same city, two shows a night, a night off, another city, another show, sometimes two nights off, depending on travel. But it's a very long and rigorous uh, experience for any performer, regardless of their age. And Elton John now is 76. At the time when he made this announcement, Initially, in in 2018, he was only 71. And he thought he would be done by 73 or 74. Now he finds himself at 76 because of the two-year delay. But the whole idea of this tour, this this farewell Yellow Brick Road tour, was because he didn't want to do that much traveling and he wanted to be he didn't want to be away from home so much because he has two young sons and he's had a husband that he's been with for more than 30 years uh total in terms of their of their relationship and they wanted to have some semblance of 
a normal family life. He wanted to spend more time with his family. He did say initially with Anderson Cooper that I am not retiring. I am not going to stop performing. I may not be I might not perform as regularly as I currently do. And for those of you who are not aware, Elton John has been touring every year doing between 80 and 100 shows every year. Since 1997. Okay? You know, that's 23, that's 26 years that he's been playing 80 to 100 shows a year. He's been playing big markets and small markets all around the United States, all around Europe, all around the world. New Zealand, Australia. Eastern Bloc countries, Europe, South America, Pacific Rim, for the last 26 years. So he's been touring quite a bit. He doesn't, if you live in a major city, he hasn't, you might say, well, I haven't seen him here in many years. Well, because he didn't want to keep coming to the well. So he would play smaller markets, sometimes in the same state, but not in a big city. Like, for instance, in the Chicago area. I've seen him perform over the last 25 years, uh, not only in Chicago proper, but also in Rosemont, in Schaumburg, at the old Sears uh, Stadium, which now I think has a different name. I've seen him play in Moline, Illinois. I've seen him play in Peoria. I've seen him play in Joliet. So... He would play small markets. I saw him play in Grand Forks, North Dakota. <laughs> My point is he's been touring for quite a bit. His sons are 12 and 10. He's been touring most of their lives, all of their lives. And now that he's getting on in age, he wants to spend some time. So he still may perform and will perform. I think it's in its blood. I don't think he can quit. But he's but if he does return, he most likely will do either one-off shows or most likely a residency where he is at one place, not a travel. That's the thing that was the key determinant factor here of the touring. He didn't want to be uh, on planes flying all around the world for months at a time. If he has a residency, especially, he's got homes here in the United States. He's got homes in France. He's got homes in, uh, in, in London. So if he wanted, for instance, he could perhaps do a, a, a two-week run for a while somewhere in London. He lives in Windsor. He could easily do that and come home at night. Do a two-weeks worth of shows over a month. Don't do a taxing pace. Don't have to do shows every night. But at least he'd be close to home. He's got a home in Los Angeles, so maybe he does some shows somewhere at a venue in Los Angeles. He doesn't have a home in New York, for instance, but he certainly could do the same thing in New York, 
play a smaller theater like the Beacon Theater. A lot of bands do residencies there. Steely Dan, other people. It's a good. It's a. It's a. It's a. It's an excellent. I've been to the Beacon. It's a. It's a. It's a very cool smaller theater. So there are possibilities, but he's not retiring. He's already announced that he's going to be recording a new album beginning in October of this year. In 2019, before he went on this tour to do shows in New Zealand in Australia, since it's so far and he's going to be there you know, for a month, he rented a home there because uh, it's so far, you've got to live there and do the shows. Since he was doing that, back in 2019, before he left for Australia in November, he asked his longtime lyricist, Bernie Taupin, to write him some new lyrics. So he said, well, you know, I'm going to be there for a month. I'm going to have some free time in between these shows. We're going to be living there. Uh, I might feel like writing some songs. Can you send me some? Can you write me some new lyrics? He didn't. He wound up not recording there for various reasons including then the uh the onset of the pandemic so he's got a full batch of lyrics that bernie topham gave him almost four years ago and i from what i understand bernie topham may have even given him more lyrics within the last four years to add on to those so he certainly has enough lyrics to write songs to and the plan is to start recording in october He may take some time off from performing, maybe a year or so, but he will perform again. So he's not retiring. That's all you kept seeing in these stories. Elton's retirement, have a good retirement, retirement, retirement. He's retiring from touring, not from recording and not from performing. It just won't be that he'll be coming to specific cities. He'll be in one city for, a, for, for an extended period of time like he did in Las Vegas with his Red Piano show in the early 2000s and then later had another successful residency in Vegas, both at Caesars Palace and the the Million Dollar Piano. I wouldn't be surprised if Las Vegas tries to lure him back. He says he doesn't want to go back to Las Vegas, but uh, he has proven his his residency there was one of the most successful residencies Las Vegas has ever had. And I'm sure they would want him back. And who knows if the if the offer of fifty million dollars is given, I think he might reconsider. And 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 once again, when he was in Las Vegas for his residency there, he would do about Four shows a week. He'd be there for about 10 days in between his touring. Without the big tour, he could schedule 20 shows in 30 days or 15. And at the time, he would stay in a, in a major, beautiful penthouse suite at one of the Caesars Palace properties, first at Caesars, later, I believe, at the Rio. And it Five o'clock, he'd take the elevator down and go to, and when he was staying at the, at Caesar's Palace, just take the elevator down, play for two hours and take the elevator back up. In other words, a lot of options he has. And once again, his health may play a role in this too. He's 76 years old. He's, he's in, he's in good health. He's not in great health. 
He had prostate cancer. He had his prostate taken out. He's got diabetes. If you've seen him walk, he's got serious knee issues. He recently had hip surgery. He should have his knees done. It's really difficult to see him walk. It's, it's amazing. He's sitting behind the piano, and he's, time, he's ageless. He's like he's 21 again. But when he stands up to walk, he looks every bit of his age, if not more. So he's not retiring, but there are other aspects now. He wants to spend time with his family. He wants to take a rest. He doesn't want to be living on airplanes like he has for the last 50 years, if you think about it. He's been a ferocious touring act. Even when his career was in something of a lull in the late 70s and in the early 80s, his concerts still sold out. He's the consummate performer. He's got a, he's got a one of the deepest and most beloved catalogs of songs that everybody knows and so many people love to hear. And he's proven he's the consummate performer. His voice is stronger than ever, ironically. He still he can't hit the high notes anymore. He had throat surgery back in 1987. But he's got a lot of options. But once again, you don't know what the future can bring. So he wants to spend time with his sons and his husband. He wants to take a break. He certainly earned it. He's played over 4,000 concerts in his career. It's outrageous. But he's not retiring. So please understand that. Especially if, if he comes back and you read somewhere that he's going to be performing in Las Vegas or he's going to be performing at the Albert Hall in, in London uh, you know, for 10 shows or he's performing at the Beacon. Oh, I thought he wasn't going to. No, he wasn't ever going to stop performing. He just wasn't going to have those big, massive, city-to-city, country-to-country tours. So that's why it was farewell Yellow Brick Road to touring, not from performing, not from recording. Okay? Okay. Now, <laughs> now that that's done, um, let me share with you some of my perspective. Because uh, this has been, over the last five years now, and it's been with that little break in the middle, but um, it's been a very interesting time of my life. Uh, I have been an Elton John fan since I was nine years old. Since 1973, when I first bought my first, the way I, I categorize it as I, I, I bought my first Elton John record, which was a 45 single of Crocodile Rock, which came out in 1973. So the fact that I went out there and spent my 89 cents at the time, whatever it was, for a 45, when I made that effort, when I, when I wasn't just hearing a song on the radio, but actually plunked down some money to buy a record by him, that's the way I count that's that's when my my fandom started 
And it only grew from there. And it grew more than I ever thought it would. Now, I like to go to extremes <laughs> in everything I do. If I like something, I am loyal to it, and I, will, I go all in. And I've talked about that before. Whether it's, whether it's handymen who come to the house to fix something, if you do a good job for me and I, and I like you and I feel that you gave me a, a fair shake, I will stay with you forever. I've bought the same brand of car for the last 30 years. I've been married for more than 30 years. I'm loyal when I like something. I'm discerning in what I like, but then when I pick it, I make sure I stay with it. And Elton is certainly one of those. And I'm very proud to say that I'm happy that I made a pretty good choice. There were other bands and, 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 and acts at the time that were popular at that time that I could have become fans of that faded quickly. So I must have had a good year, year at that time because 50 years later, He's still around. In fact, it's 53 years. His first, 54 years, his first album was in 1969. That wasn't the hit, but his his second album called Elton John is the one that had your song on it. That came out in 1970. And so here we are in 1973. So for the most part, in terms of mainstream fame, recognition, success, he's had a 53-year career. And it's, it's almost been a successful career from day one. When he came to the United States in August of 1970 to Los Angeles and played at the Troubadour Club at the time, and still is around, that club is still there, but at the time, it was the, the club in L.A., the hip club, the cool club, it was where... Either established acts went to hang out and play or up-and-coming acts went to be seen and heard by the music industry people as well as the public. James Taylor and Carol King used to play there. The Eagles used to play there. Linda Ronstadt, anybody. Every, anybody was anybody if you, from the 70s. If you read about the baby boomer 70s singer-songwriters, they'll all mention that they played the troubadour. And so Elton was brought over from England as a relative unknown. And literally overnight... And that's not even an exaggeration. He was an overnight sensation. After his first show, he did four shows at the Troubadour. After his first show, he got a glowing review by Robert Hilburn of the Los Angeles Times. And his life and career was never the same. He went from a relatively unknown to a star on the rise to then a year and a half later, having a number one album. The first of seven consecutive albums at number one in the United States. Started with Honky Chateau. Ended with Captain Fantastic in 1975. Number one albums. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Rock of the Westies in 1975. 
Captain Fantastic and Rock of the Westies were the only were the first two albums in history to ever enter the Billboard charts at number one. So he's had quite a career, and you can argue that as he stands here today at seventy six years old, his popularity in many ways may have may even equal or have surpassed the the crazy frenzy of success that he had from pretty much 72 to 76, a good four years. Even his album in 76 that that did not reach number one was at number three, Blue Moves. (laughs) So, you know, it wasn't as if he was falling off that much. And if it wasn't for a combination of him admitting he was bisexual, which shook the world at that time in 1976 to admit you were bisexual. That was not something that you did. It wasn't like today where people are, are able to freely talk about their sexual orientation. That was a huge story that had, that did have ramifications, especially here in the United States, which was still very conservative. But then at the same time, he also had to battle Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life, which is one of the great albums of all time. And that's what basically kept Blue Moves out of the top spot. But still, it debuted at number three and stayed there for several weeks. But my point is, he's had a 50-year career, and I've been with him not from the very beginning. I was too young at the time to have... I could, I mean, I guess I could have, but I, I I, I wasn't aware yet. I was buying records. I was listening. And I remember when I bought his Greatest Hits album in 74, and I put it on, I heard some of the early songs, and I went, oh, wait a minute. I, I've i heard these songs. I didn't know that was him. Because his voice was very different all the time on songs, which is another reason why he was so interesting at that in his heyday there in the 70s. His songs just didn't sound like any other songs on the radio. And his voice was always different. He had a great falsetto at the time, which I still loved. That, 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 that falsetto of those, those high octave, uh, the way that he used to, uh, just in the middle of a, of, a, of a verse, go high and low. The different time signatures in the songs. Um, there was so much. It obviously, visually, with his costumes and his flamboyance. There, he was the whole package. First time I saw him perform, like I said, now I became a fan at seven, in 1973, but I was still too young to go to concerts. There's no way my mom and dad were going to let me go to a concert, certainly not by myself, and they didn't want to go. <laughs> so the first time I ever went, though, my mom did take me, though, when I was a little older, when I was 12, was in 1976 which was a huge tour for him, one of the most successful tours at the time. At that time, I had no idea that at that first show I saw in 1976, that almost, what, 47 years later, I will have seen 215 Elton John concerts in the next 47 years. No way could have I have predicted that as a 12-year-old. <laughs> no way would I have predicted I would have traveled 
throughout the country and to countries around the world to see him perform. No way. Never could have predicted that when I was only 12. No way I could ever predicted that in the next 47 years that I would have met him personally, one-on-one, four times. No way that I would have ever predicted that he would dedicate songs to me by name at concerts twice. Or that he would mention my name from the stage and acknowledge me from the stage more than a dozen times. It's been an amazing journey. It's been a major, major part of my life. And so when this tour was announced in 2018, as I said, even though there was possibility, and still is right now, that he will still perform, so the chances are I will see him perform again. But once again, you don't know. You don't know. He might get used to domestic tranquility. His health may play a factor. You don't know. So yes, there's certainly a stake in the ground here. As it stands right now, for the first time in 47 years, I don't know if I'm going to see Elton John perform again. There are no tickets on sale. There are no tours planned. I don't have any tickets in hand. I don't know. And so this last tour has been somewhat bittersweet, and it's been a swirl of emotions. It's been very interesting. Initially, when, the sh- when it was announced, among the first shows of the tour, I went opening night on September 8th, 2018, in Allentown, Pennsylvania, on the first show of the last tour. And it was emotional because there, it, 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 at that show, there was the beginning. It was the first acknowledgement that this was the beginning of the end. And even though the, 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 the tour was going to you know, go on for three years at that time, it wound up going on for five because of COVID, but at that time it was going on for three years. Even though I was very confident that I would see him many times on that tour, which I did, ultimately um, I saw 36 shows of the Farewell Yellow Brick Road Tour. 36 shows over the three years that it was up and, and running. 2018. 2019, 2022, and, you know, well, well, half of, you know, basically three years because it wasn't until September of 2018 when it started, and it ended now in July. So that's a half and a half. So it was three years of, of literally touring. 330 shows he performed total. I saw 36 of them. In five countries, the United States, United Kingdom, France, the Netherlands, and his final two shows in Stockholm, Sweden. Throughout this tour, the Farewell Yellow Brick Road tour, 
The final tour, I saw him perform in Los Angeles and Detroit and Chicago and New York City, in Minneapolis, in Lincoln, Nebraska, in Watford in the United Kingdom, in Milwaukee, in Paris, in Stockholm, in Allentown, Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, in Indianapolis, in Milwaukee, in Oakland, in Anaheim, in Cleveland, and in Boston. Many times there were multiple shows in those cities. He returned to some of those cities many times, including Detroit and Chicago and Los Angeles. The first show was very emotional because, as I said, it was a realization of the beginning of the end. And many of the early shows on this tour in 2018, the people were were showing their gratitude, their, their 40 and 50 years worth of gratitude to him. And it was very interesting. He was saying how this is going to be his last tour, and he was just getting in the swing. But you could see that there was a realization in his mind that this was the end. And he, was, he would get, at some shows, he would get very emotional he, to the point where he would break down. He would be thanking the fans, and he'd have to stop. And you could see him physically sobbing or trying to contain himself. And then the fans, of course, would continue to shower him with even more applause. I always knew what was, it was an interesting tour because even though it was farewell, for many people it was. They would see him one time, it was the last time they would see them. I knew that I was not that. Every show was that I went to would not be my last. So I was not. I mean, I, 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 there were there were some shows where I was taken over by emotion. There's no question because of the way he was reacting, the way the crowd was reacting, or what happened at some of the shows. I'll never forget a highlight of my life was at Madison Square Garden. On October 19th, 2018, once again, toward the beginning of the tour, he dedicated a song to me from the stage at Madison Square Garden. I was completely taken aback. It was like I got hit by a lightning bolt. I've played the uh, I've played the the audio from it. In fact, you know what? Why don't I why don't I do it right now for you? I think I can do it. Why not? Wasn't planning on it, but it only makes sense, right? <laughs> There's so many people there tonight, here tonight who are my friends. But there's one person I want to dedicate this song to because I've been talking about you guys out there. This guy from Chicago has been to so many shows. He's one of the loyalist fans of the world. I've never dedicated the song to him. But tonight I'm dedicating to this to Jim Toronto. This is for you, baby. There's so many people. <laughs> How about that? 
<laughs> I still get goosebumps. October 19th, 2018. I couldn't believe it. I was sitting in the front row. I had been singing along with Elton the whole show, doing my air piano as I usually do, egging him on to keep playing more and harder. And there is no way in hell I ever expected him to give me that dedication. And I was overcome with emotion, obviously, at the time. And still am. And he dedicated another song to me last summer at Watford, where he played in England, and he grew up near there, and that was his favorite uh, soccer team. He owned it at one time. He's the emer- president emeritus. Very special concert. I had written, he had gone back there and done, um, in the, in the 2000, early 2000s, he had done some bef- benefit concerts for the team. And I wrote the official programs for both of those shows in 2005 and 2015, or 2010. And um, so, for and he dedicated a song to me last summer there. And for so to have him to dedicate a song once again in a, in a in a stadium in a place that it was very special to him made it even more special to me and to have done that at Madison Square Garden not only one of the the most famous venues in the world but his favorite place to play and the fact that he did that um, I I still don't know how to process it really as I said there's no way that that little kid who bought Crocodile Rock in 1973 could have ever imagined that this performer who for so long, before I ever saw him in concert for three years, really lived as just an image on album covers, in magazines, and on television. And here he was dedicating a song to me, and just to me. It was quite a moment. It still is quite a moment. And that happened on this farewell tour. And I think as the tour went on, he began to realize and see how many people, these shows kept selling out, they were adding more shows, and there, believe me, folks, a lot of people say, oh, well, you're the biggest fan, you know, the biggest Elton John fan. No, no. I have met fans from around the world, literally, and there are fans who share the same passion that I do. Many have been to more shows. I've been to 215 Elton John shows. There are people that have been to more shows. There have been people that have been to 178 shows, like my friend Wayne Martin. There's somebody that I understand has been to 500 shows. Somebody that's been to 300 shows. I know somebody that's been to probably more than 250 shows. Elton John has nurtured and attracted a a huge and a deeply loyal following. And they're everywhere. And I've been lucky enough to meet many of them along the way from city to city, 
town to town, country to country. And it's always been a very special occasion. What's been so cool about having traveled to so many cities and so many countries over the last 47 years and seeing Elton perform is that wherever I would be, especially now because of social media, people, you know, they follow you. They can see what you look like. They know what you're doing. You post things. There have rarely been. I could go to a foreign country. I just did. I just came back from Stockholm. And there were people that came up to me and said, Jim Toronto, wow, it's great to see you in person. It's great to meet you. When I went to Paris recently, same thing. Several years ago, I mentioned before, I went to Grand Forks, North Dakota, about as remote of a place as you could go to do a concert. And I was standing in the concourse and someone came up to me and said, Jim Toronto, how you doing? <laughs> so I've never felt alone in all my travel. Sometimes my wife has come with me, but many times, for the most part, I've gone on my own. But I've never really felt alone because the Elton John community is huge and it is very embracing and welcoming. And so to all those people that I've met along this yellow brick road in the last 47 years, uh, thank you for making me feel welcome wherever I've gone. Some of the people I would consider some of my best friends I met because of our shared interest in Elton John, people that I never would have met lived in other states around, across the country, around the world. I never would have met these people. But we shared a common bond. We met because of our interest in Elton's music and performance. And not only did we share that interest and that passion, but with many of these people, we wound up finding we had other things in common too and became very good friends to the point where we would visit them and vacation with them. Aside from any kind of Elton activities, just as friends. People like Tom Stanton and Wayne Martin and Alan McCormick and John Higgins, among the longest that I've known through my Elton experiences. As I said, I've met Elton four times. I came to know and interview and meet and be quote-unquote friends with many of the most important people in his life and career, including most of his band members like Davy Johnstone and Nigel Olson and John Mahon and Bob Birch and Guy Babylon. And Bernie Taupin, his lyricist, who I interviewed twice. And Gus Dudgeon, who was his fantastic, the late Gus Dudgeon, who was his fantastic producer. I've been on television several times because of my Elton fandom. You can go online on YouTube, look up Elton Jim on VH1. There's about a 10-minute vignette from a show that was called Fan Club about major fans that was on in 2001. 
that shows a lot of my memorabilia and he shows me going to concerts and basically summarizes a lot of my fandom. I was on a show, a national show called Collector's Call that showed my collection. I've been interviewed. I've written stories. I've been interviewed on different TV shows and for different articles. I've written eight of his official programs from 2003 through 2009. Eight different programs for different tours in the United States and internationally. Specific concerts as well as major concert tours. That was always a goal. I wrote liner notes for an album by his longtime guitarist and music director, Davey Johnstone, and a former good, uh, band member named John Jorgensen, one of, uh, who turned out to be a, a very good, good friend of mine through our, my, his association with Elton. Still talk to John, one of the greatest and, uh, musicians out there. I wrote the liner notes for an album of theirs called Crop Circles. I always wanted to write some liner notes for an album. I would have loved to have written one for an Elton album. And there's always that possibility. Fingers crossed, right? But I did write one for the John Jorgensen, Davy Johnstone album called Crop Circles in 1999. So this association, this Elton experience, has not only been fulfilling because it's been my passion but even from a professional standpoint from so many of the personal and professional goals uh, and dreams that i had i've been able to realize them through this through my media career and my writing career um the acknowledgement I have handwritten letter, I have have I have handwritten letters from Elton to me thanking me for my loyalty which are prized possessions. I have many pieces of uh of memorabilia, pinball machines. <laughs> it's been quite a journey. It's been quite a ride. And these concerts as I said, were were interesting in the swirl of emotions that they elicited. Early on, they were this sense of, okay, well, this is it. But then as the, as the tour continued, uh, it, it, it just became something that, that was, seemed to be ongoing. And then, of course, COVID extended it. And so it never really felt like it was going to end because it was the, the, the last show was so far in the future, and I knew I would see him again, and I knew I would see him again. I reached my 200th show of my life during this final tour in Detroit. I had it planned to be in Chicago, but the way the shows were rescheduled after COVID, the Chicago shows wound up coming before the Detroit show, and so... 198 and 199 were in Chicago, and then 200 was in Detroit. (laughs) No less exciting. 
And Elton gave me a shout-out on my 200th show. He gave me a shout-out on my 198th show. He gave me shout-outs at many shows that I was. I always have my sign. The first time I ever had a sign, you'll see at Elton John shows during this tour, people were starting to put up signs with the number of concerts that they had attended. And you saw some impressive numbers. Some 30, 40, 50, some in their hundreds, as I said, many. Some in the uh, the high hundreds, almost 200. A couple of them in the 200s, like myself. But I will take credit for this. I told you at the beginning of this show I like to take credit when I, when I do something. <laughs> Back in 2013, I went to my 150th show. And here in Chicago, as it happened to work out, and so I had a sign that said, 150th show, Jim Toronto from Chicago. And Elton recognized me and said, thank you, 150 shows. That's amazing. My goal was to hit 150 shows by the time I was 50. 150 by 50 was kind of my little slogan for that. You know, I am a PR guy. And I made it. But I, start, I believe I did start the sign thing. I will take credit for that. Nobody was bringing signs to concerts like that with the number of shows they went to. I believe I was the first one in November of 2013. I think I started a trend. Because <laughs> then I started to do that more often and more often. I think people started to see it. And then when I started to get acknowledged, and I said, well, wait a minute, I want to show how many I have. So I'm going to take credit for that one too. <laughs> I had assumed that the last shows I would see of this tour would be in Paris. I saw the la- the three shows that he did at Dodger Stadium in November of 2022. And I said, well, I'd like to see him at least one more time, you know, before it ends. And so I said, well, Paris has always been a favorite place of his to perform. I've never seen him perform in Paris it's always a very special place for him, is just as like just as Madison Square Garden in New York is, just as England is for him. Paris, he has a home in Paris. He lives in Paris in Nice. It's always been a very important part of his career. He recorded many of his albums there, including uh, some of his best, like Honky Chateau and Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player, and of course, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road was recorded in France. Started to be recorded in Jamaica, but the recording studio there was not up to par, and they went back to France, and that's where Goodbye Yellow Brick Road was recorded. And then he did some other albums later in his career, like The One, also in France. So France is a very important part of his career, too, and so I thought it would be cool to see him in Paris. It's a special place for him, and that was... In late June, the 27th and 28th of June. And I thought, well, that would be a nice way to end, you know, I'm, I don't know. Stockholm, you know, as I said, was a, an accidental last show of the, of the tour. It wasn't planned that way. There was no big significance to, to Stockholm in his career or anything like that. So I thought, well, Paris is, you know, maybe a week before the end. So that would be a fitting way to to see him and and uh, the last time on this tour so made the plans and we went to see him he gave me a shout out at 
the Paris show, that one of the Paris shows, which was nice. So I felt very complete at the time. They were they were very emotional and uh, and excellent shows. And so uh, while I was there, I felt okay. This is this is okay. This is a good way to go out on this. Until I got home. <laughs> Until I got home, and then reality set in. And everybody asked me, are you going to go to Stockholm? Are you going to go to Stockholm? Are you going to go to Stockholm? Are you going to Stockholm? All the fans and other people, even some of the band members, are you going to go to Stockholm? And I said, well, you know, I I, I really don't think so. I, I but, but then... The reality of it, the the finality of it was beginning then to really hit me for the first time since 2018, the the finality of it, that this could be the last time I see him. There's no guarantees. I went to the first show on September 8th, 2018. So how could I really not go to the last show on July 8th, 2023, right? And so even though I came, and many people that I knew, they were they stayed in Europe because, you know, why would you travel that far? I honestly did not expect to go to that last one. I came home and then I said, okay, wait a minute. And I looked for airfares and for cheap hotels and I looked to see if I can get tickets. And so I was barely home a week from Paris, and I was back on another nine-hour flight to Stockholm. And every when I got there, the people that, some of these longtime friends and fans that I know said, we knew you were coming. How could you not come? And I said, you know, maybe I was just fooling myself as well. Because it sounded crazy to go to come back, and as I said, I didn't feel that it was going to be. It wasn't like the, the the big pomp and circumstance of the Dodger Stadium show. There wasn't any big significance to the Stockholm shows, except that they were the last shows. But my gosh, am I glad I went! People from all over the world, major fans that I hadn't seen in a long time, did come to that show. People from Australia, people from Dubai. Dubai, people from other states around this country here in the United States and people from England, major, major fans like myself who all felt the need to be there to say goodbye to Elton that one last time. And as crazy as it sounded and as irrational as it was to go back after I'd just seen him a week before, to get back on a plane and fly back i just gotten over my jet lag from the paris trip but i'll tell you i am so glad i went there really was a closure there really was a real ending the shows were very emotional especially the last one and on the last show i did get up to the front of the stage i had my 215 sign that i flashed to elton I made eye contact with him many times, and he gave me smiles and nods, as he often does. And then he once again gave me a shout-out from the stage to thank me and and many others that he gave a shout-out to uh, for our years of loyalty and all the shows that we've seen, similar to the way he said in the New York one that I played you. And then the show ended, and 
it was funny. I I hadn't really been hit with any real emotion at the Paris shows. So maybe in the back of my mind, I knew that I was going to see him again, even though I didn't know I was going to see him again. The first show on July 7th in Stockholm, I really wasn't overly emotional, but I did notice when he played your song, which is the second to the last song of the set, I got hit with a little jolt of emotion, and it shocked me because I hadn't been feeling anything before that. And so, but it it wasn't overt. I wasn't bawling or anything. I just felt a little tinge of emotion. I didn't cry per se, but I just felt a little jolt. And and Elton was certainly he wasn't he was showing much more he's he showed much more emotion he, he you could tell he was genuinely touched by the outpouring of love and loyalty that he's been gaining on this tour throughout the last several years there's no question and he genuinely thanked people but he hadn't broken down like he did early in the tour i don't know if he was fighting it maybe he he felt he didn't want to look like, because he was very adamant in that he had no regrets about this decision to stop touring and spend more time with his family. So perhaps he was fighting that just to show that he was not sad or regretting his decision to make this his final massive tour. But instead, he was looking forward to it, appreciative of the loyalty and the years that his fans have given him, but also content with his decision. So that first show on July 7th wasn't overtly emotional, and it was a hell of a show. The band was really performing at at a high level because it was emotional for them too. He's had this same band more or less since 1997. Sadly, two members passed away in the last um, 27 years. Bob Birch and Guy Babylon. But he's had this same band pretty much intact. Nigel Olson rejoined in 2000. Um, and it really is a very high quality, one of his best stage bands, touring bands ever, no question, with the addition also over the last couple of years with Ray Cooper again on percussion. So it was emotional for a lot of people. Many of the people in Elton's crew have been working with him for decades. More than that, 30, 40 years. Once again, um, nobody knows what the future may bring. There's, there's hopes and expectations, but there's nothing in concrete right now. Everybody's kind of in limbo. Maybe Elton himself is in limbo. Who knows? The final show, you could feel had some gravitas to it. Elton hugged his longtime stage manager before he went on. He took a deep breath. He made mention that this is the last show, so let's really make it a great one. He did give that extra. You could see all the band members. It was, it was As I was watching it, it was dawning on me, is that, okay, is this the last time he will play Rocket Man? 
Is this the last time he will play? Don't let the sun go down on me. It could be. It could be. Is this the last time he will play your song? Probably not. Live for an audience? Probably not. But you never know. There was a finality to it that hung over it. And everybody in the auditorium knew it and felt it. And when the show was about three quarters over and he began the, the, the band introductions, that's when, when it hit me. That's when it really hit me. And I really got very emotional. And because I know a lot of the guys in the band, to some extent, and I had become friends with them over the last decades. And I'd seen them perform how many times? Certainly Davy Johnstone, 215 times. He's been at every almost, well, no, I shouldn't say that because in 1980 he wasn't on that tour. But, you know, more than 200 times. <laughs> And I've come to know them and interview them and, and talk to them and, and spend time with them socially. And especially enjoy their talents on the stage. So it really started to hit me. When he introduced each one, I started to really well up. And then as each song, at that time, then there's only about maybe seven or eight songs left. And after each song, I was wondering, okay, is this the last time he's going to play I'm Still Standing? Is this the last time he's going to play Saturday Night's Right for Fighting? Is this the last time he's going to play Crocodile Rock? Is this the last time he's going to play Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me? Is this the last time he's going to sing your song? Is this the last time he's going to sing Goodbye, Brick Road? And then it really hit me. And then, of course, when he said my name and thanked the fans, before the last song of Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, before he finished and then left the stage, uh, it was it was it was pretty tough. It was exciting and thrilling and sad, but it was sad not in a depressing way. It was still sad in a in a happy triumphant way, if that makes any sense to you. And I look at it now, I'm so glad I went to those two shows. I'm I'm so thankful and that he made such a generous gesture and, and gave me a shout out at that last show. And it really did bring things to a closure and it really did come full circle. And I couldn't help but thinking of friends who have passed, who were big Elton fans, who I always bring with me to each show, like Alan McCormick. And certainly, I'm always thinking of my mom, who brought me to my first show, who knew how much I loved Elton John and made sure that I was there when he came to Chicago that first time that I was old enough, I guess, to see him. In fact, one of my favorite songs always has been, long before it became beloved over the last 20 years after it was in the, the movie almost famous and became much more popular. But one of my favorite songs were all was has always been Tiny Dancer. And my mom passed away. It will be 17 years this year in a couple of months in September. And the song and the line that really sh- sticks with me 
and has new has had and has had new meaning for me over the last 17 years since she passed is the line in tiny dancer that says now she's in me always with me and so whenever elton sings that song and he he always does but when he sings that song in concert and when he sings that line i always just look up and smile and say thank you mom because i'm at the spot at that point i'm thinking of my mom she's with me there and i think of that time she brought me to that first concert probably didn't want to go but knew how much it meant to me and she is in me and always with me and i do feel very close to her when elton sings that line so i will miss that experience in fact i wonder if many ways that was why i went to so many shows in the last 17 years because i i enjoyed that moment when he sang those lines because of what they meant to me and in that space it reminded me of my mom and we were together at the concert at that first concert every time i go to an elton john concert wherever i'm at whether it's in grand forks north dakota whether it's down the street in chicago illinois whether it's thousands of miles away in stockholm or in paris or in amsterdam or in england Oh, and I, I, mean, I forgot to say, I also saw him in Prague, too. Not on this tour, but I have seen him perform in Prague. So the Czech Republic. So I've seen him in six countries overall. Wherever I'm at, when he comes out on stage, I always say to myself, this is exactly where I want to be right now. And that's a a cool feeling to know that you are in the exact spot where you want to be. We have so often we don't have control of our lives or so often we don't have control of what we want to do or where we are. And at least for me, 215 times, whether it's been around the country or around the world, 215 times I have been exactly where I've wanted to be. And I thank Elton John for that. He's gotten me off the couch. He's had me, he's allowed me in many ways to, to go and do things. My, one of my favorite phrases is a line by Leonardo da Vinci called, We Must Do. And he certainly did. And that has been a guiding thought for me. We must do. And part of the reason I've gone to so many concerts is because of that. We must do. Elton concerts have gotten me off the couch. They've gotten me to do things, to follow my passions. And... uh, to have few regrets instead of saying, wouldn't it be cool if I say it was cool when, and so 
it's been an interesting relationship. It's been an interesting obsession or passion, whatever you want to call it. But it's been a major part of my life. And um, I wouldn't be who I am without it. I have been influenced quite a bit by Elton in many ways, personally and professionally. And I, I don't know who I would be, perhaps. I don't know. It'd be interesting. I was so young at the time that the that I, I think there's no question that that uh, the influence of Elton John's persona and music and philanthropy and other things, just like any other influence you have early on in your life, helps define you. So I think in many ways who I am today is in part to my passion for Elton John, my fandom, my obsession, whatever you want to call it. It's there, it's real, it's been a part of my life, and I'm happy for it. And so, yes, there is some finality of it here. It was bittersweet. I have hope and optimism that I will see him perform once again, sometime soon, perhaps. Who knows? But if not, I have great gratitude and great thanks that he shared his talent with the world and he gave so much of himself to his fans and his admirers in terms of touring and in terms of sharing his talent and so much music that he has put out, more than 30 albums over a 50-year career. Um, it's been quite a ride. It's been quite a journey. It's been quite a roll, walk down the Yellow Big Road. I hope it isn't over. But if it is, I'm glad that I was there when it ended. And I look for new passions to explore. But I will always have that passion as part of my life. And so I simply say thank you to Elton John for playing such a major part in my life, for helping me explore the world, experience the world, experience people that I never would have met, and for helping to become the person that I am. Thank you, Elton. And so ends another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday, a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast, we are there. And don't forget to tell your friends, tell your family, tell anybody who listens to a podcast that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic, and it should be theirs too. Your loyalty and devotion are much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed episode number 373. I'm Jim Toronto. I ain't here on business. I'm only here for fun. You've been listening to Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic from the end of the web to your screen.